2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And on a dope-ass mic, this is Nick Saveri. That's right. New microphones, a new time for the show. Uh, Nick, we got a great show for everybody tonight. Um, Joining us is going to be a legendary producer that has done some fantastic documentaries. Nick, Cocaine Cowboys, have you seen it?
3: I saw for the first time a couple weeks ago from your recommendation. It's exactly. unbelievable.
2: What's such a good documentary? He's he's produced some legendary ones. ESPN's thirty for thirty, the U uh broke. As you see, for those of you watching on video, Nick is wearing a University of Miami shirt for the, the U? Thirty for Thirty. But he's also done uh, documentaries in the political landscape, 537 Votes, which is available now on HBO Max about the 2000 uh, election and the recount that happened in Florida. Also did Screwball, which is on Netflix now streaming. Uh, That's about A-Rod and the Biogenesis saga that happened back in 2010, 11, 12, and all the baseball players that tested positive for HGH. And that's legendary producer, award-winning producer Alfred Spellman is going to be joining us tonight um to really talk not only about his career and him and Billy Corbin started Racenter uh, Productions and they've done so many great documentaries but you know a lot of people don't know Nick what a producer does you know we we had Jason Aaron who who directed The Last Dance and a bunch of other ESPN 30 for 30s and you know we talked a lot from the direction angle and and the way Jason crafted some of these projects and tonight we're really going to get a little bit more into the weeds of of what producers do and what Alfred's role really is on a lot of these projects, and also some of the great stories that have come out of Miami Dade, where him and Billy are from, and just some of the great stories that that Florida tells. You know, um, I'm very excited to to talk to Alfred tonight.
3: Yeah, we get a chance to hear about his just professional growth. We get a chance to hear about something I'm particularly interested in is collaboration. You know, for our fans, for listeners of the show, you know, forget. You know, Alfred, for a moment, forget Billy, just thinking about like two people who work really well together and the fruits of their labor are things that we've all experienced in some form or another. Right what does it take to get that? And hopefully people coming out tonight get a chance to understand what it means to be in a really supportive, collaborative relationship. And how does that really help you professionally? No, that's really well said, because, you know, you think a lot about and everyone
2: sees the credits, right? And they see the last person's name that pops in, it's always, you know, directed by Billy Corbin. And you're just like, what about these other producers, you know, or people, the editors that worked on these projects? And then, how do they come up with conceptually these stories? You know, Jason told us in, in that episode about Andre the Giant, how he told the story of the person, not so much the wrestler, right? And how him and his team, same thing with um, the, the Last Dance documentary, talking about this was an underdog team. You know, Michael Jordan was, you know, a little known draft pick. So tonight we really get to dive into those stories because some of these documentaries, especially 537 Votes, which just came out recently. About the 2000 election, a lot of people are comparing that to what happened present day. You know, a president that didn't concede votes that weren't tallied in one state until December 16th. There was lawsuits, and it's like, how did how do you come up with uh, telling this story? You know, and, and it happened 20 years ago, and keeping it fresh to what's happening in present day. And in that documentary, Roger Stone's in that documentary, and obviously he's been in the political landscape for so long. And then Screwball, which I've told you to watch numerous times, Nick, uh, about A-Rod and the Biogenesis uh, Lab down here in Miami. You know, it's done through the dramatization of kids as actors acting out the parts of A-Rod and Tony Bosch. And it's just really well done. So, like, even selecting something like that. And then putting it out there, you know, into the universe. Like, I just, I'm just so fascinated by some of that stuff. And I think a lot of people don't see really how the sausage is made. And we're going to get into that tonight with Alfred. All right, joining us now, he's an award-winning producer that has worked on some great documentaries uh, from Cocaine Cowboys to 537 Votes, one of my favorite that's streaming now on HBO Max. And also Screwball on Netflix, the story of A-Rod and the Biogenesis scandal that happened back in the early 2010s. And that is Alfred Spellman. Alfred, Mike Leon, Nick Severi. Uh, thanks for jumping on with us tonight. Thanks for
1: the invite, guys. Great to be with
2: you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Alfred, I, you know, I want to get a little bit more into um, your story. Uh, tell us a little bit about for the, our audience who's maybe unfamiliar with, you know, the work that you guys have, you and Billy Corbin have done. But tell us a little bit about how, how you guys knew each other, your upbringing, and then how you got into producing.
1: Sure. So uh, I was born in Miami Beach in 1978, and I like to tell everybody that the Miami Beach that I was born in is much different than the Miami Beach you could possibly imagine today. Uh, The the year I was born, the median age in Miami Beach was 67. It was one of the few cities on earth where there were more people dying than being born every year. So it was essentially a retirement community, and that's what Miami Beach was through most of the late 70s and into the 80s uh, when things started to change a little bit. Growing up in Miami Beach was like a really odd experience being a young kid surrounded by elderly people. And so, I, and being an, an only child, I started, you know, I, I was around adults a lot. So, I started, I enjoyed listening to stories that older people would tell. And, you know, a lot of the people who were around in Miami Beach then were, were Holocaust survivors, uh, old, old elderly Jews who lived down in the old motels in South Beach, uh, living out the remaining years. And so, you know, the storytelling that, that, that went on during that period was just fascinating. Um, and so I think that's probably where I got my curiosity for, for storytelling and for talking to older people and hearing, uh, and listening to history, uh, seeing how history applies to present-day issues. So that was basically growing up in Miami Beach in the 1980s and Billy and I met in TV production class in ninth grade at Highland Oaks Middle School in North Miami Beach. Um, our TV production teacher, Mrs. Spicer, uh, Kind of saw something in both of us and said, "You guys need to work together." And so we started working together in TV production class. And through high school, we made uh, uh, several short films. And so we both ended up at the University of Miami uh, and taking leave of absence in two thousand to make our uh, first documentary, which is called "Raw Deal: A Question of Consent," which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival the following year. So that's that's kind of the origin story.
3: You know, you're obviously you come to us tonight. You know, producer is you know the name that's always applied to you. You know, in these projects. Uh, was production what you were setting out to get into in filmmaking and, and also just in general for our audience, tell us what, a, what is the role of a producer in filmmaking?
1: So the way that I describe the role of the producer is the producer is essentially the CEO. The producer is there to help the director realize his creative vision and to be able to then commercially exploit the, the project. So um, you know, really, when Billy and I started working together, we have a third partner, David Sitkin, who's worked with us since we were 15 as well. Um, the three of us uh, all kind of focused in on the on the skill sets that we were we were best at. Uh, you know, I'm super organized and a detail-oriented person kind of like to manage projects. I, you know, I tell everybody producing a movie is like developing a, a building in real estate. You know, it's, it's, it's constructing buildings, dealing with the subcontractors and the supplies and the materials and making sure everything gets where it should be at the right time and kind of focusing on the big picture while also being able to, to deal with the smaller logistical details. So that's where, really, so the producer does everything, basically. Uh, you know, I, I, carry equipment when I have to carry equipment and uh, you know uh, uh, I write the call sheets when no one else is writing the call sheets. And so you end up doing basically whatever needs to be done to get the project
0: done.
2: You know, Alfred, uh, I was telling you this all air. I'm in Miami. My wife is from Miami, a Coral Park grad. Uh, you're in Miami beach. Um, all of these documentaries that you guys have produced tell this story as Miami, you know, as the backdrop or the, or the lifeblood of it from Screwball, Coke, and Cowboys, and even what happened with the 2000 uh, recount. What is it uh, in the water in Miami that produces some great stories? What, what is going on in this city? I mean, people read the news and they see Florida, man, this, but like, what is it about Miami that produces some of these great stories?
1: So I think at the end of the day, Miami is a border town, right? We are a place where people pass through. People are always coming, they're going, they're leaving, they're returning, uh, they're just arriving. So like any border town, like any Casablanca, uh, Miami has its share of characters. And, you know, we're... At- essentially we're a very young city you know 18, the city of miami was founded in 1896 so we're just over 100 years old and so we you know we're not boston we're not philadelphia we don't have families who have been here for 200 years uh you know we don't have kind of the institutions that other communities have that have been built generation on generation on generation sometimes good sometimes bad sometimes those things Create kind of a stasis where you're not able to kind of progress or advance or kind of create a a, a caste system, which isn't the case in Miami. As long as you have the money and and uh, you know and and you're having ready to have a good time, Miami is open for you. And so it's always historically been a wide open city. It's been a wide open city when it came to organized crime, when it came to the original uh, 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 mafia uh, out of uh, out of the Northeast. Miami was considered when South Florida was considered one of those places where. Uh, no one family laid claim that was considered open territory. And uh, it's been that way since the era of Meyer Lansky and uh, continues to be that day today. It's just a wide open town for every sort of hustle uh, and every sort of, uh, of dreamer you can imagine.
3: You know, one thing that's amazing about your about your films is accessibility. You know, in isolation, when you mentioned to someone, mm-hmm. hey, you're up for watching a documentary, like there's sometimes there's a reservation, right? But, you know, when I think of the work that you and Billy have done, you know, it's every single project I've seen. It's just like, you're just drawn in and there's something about the city of Miami as Mike speaks to, but in general, what is, what's sort of in the secret sauce for you both in telling these kinds of stories that people kind of get hooked into like they're like fiction.
1: Well, you got to remember, I mean, we're 42. We're from the generation when you said documentary, it was the teacher reeling in the VCR on the cart, you know, and you're going to have to watch some terrible uh, educational films. So You know, when we were growing up, documentary was like it meant homework, it meant PBS, it meant boring, it meant, you know, educational, certainly. And so when we started to make documentaries, it was right around the time of the the first, you know, the reality television boom. In the early zero, Survivor had just launched uh, Big Brother. So you had kind of people getting accustomed to watching reality all of a sudden because... Uh, digital video took over, high definition video took over. And so it looked good and it looked, uh, uh, you know, it looked looked like a a format on which you could tell stories, not just report news like video used to be. So um, we, you know, our approach really was, we said, you know, when we decided to make Cocaine Cowboys, we said, okay, we're going to make a gangster movie. Okay, we, we are when we make documentaries, we always look for the narrative genre analog, right? Like, documentary isn't a genre of film because documentaries can be dramas, they can be comedies, they can be thrillers, they can be musicals, they could be, be any sort of genre that exists in, in dramatic films. So, what we always like to do is to try to figure out what the genre is that we want to tell. So, Cocaine Cowboys is a gangster movie. We said, How would Martin Scorsese? tell a drug story like this. You know, up till that point, drug stories were always good guys, bad guys, right? Cops, robbers, you know? you know, the white hats versus the black hats. And so drug stories, crime, you know, drug stories in particular in terms of documentaries were always told from the perspective of the DEA or the prosecutor or the cops. So we said, we're, we're going to tell the story of how this city profited and benefited from this enormous drug trade that made Miami's headquarters in the late 70s. And that was, you know, that wasn't a theory that the, you know, Chamber of Commerce endorsed. You know, no, nobody really kind of concluded that until we made Cocaine Cowboys. Now it's kind of like received wisdom in a way. Yeah, Miami was built on the back of modern Miami. We you know went from God's waiting room to America's Riviera because of the cocaine trade. So, Cocaine Cowboys is a great example of us kind of honing in on a genre uh, and 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 trying to make that in the documentary form. Um, our Recent documentary screwball that we made about the Alex Rodriguez the biogenesis steroid scandal that led to the downfall of, of Alex Rodriguez, and what we said there was that oh this is a, this is a Coen Brothers movie right? If the Coen Brothers ever made a documentary, these are the characters that would have to be in this Coen Brothers movie. So we said okay, we have to steer right into it. It's a heist movie, right? It's not a sports documentary like we've made before. This is a this is a heist movie. And so we're going to tell it with a little comedic flair, a little fantastic flair. We're going to cast kids, nine-year-old children, to do these reenactments. So, you know, uh, we did a backyard fighting doc called Dogfight. That was an 80s action movie. We said that's like, you know, that's, that's kind of you know, the, the genre analog is a 1980s, you know, uh, uh, big uh, action movie. So we went with a big orchestral score for it. Uh, so all of our films kind of are dictated by that cinematic type of storytelling where we try to find the, the appropriate genre analog.
2: You know, it's funny that you just mentioned screwball because my, my wife's entire family knows Tony Bosch's family. Uh, like I mentioned, she went to Coral Park and, and, and her dad went to Columbus. And so like, just those connections. Um, so I want to understand screwball for a minute, just as an example of one of the docs, like you talked about the kids doing the dramatizations when you guys are conceptualizing this stuff and then you're shooting it. Is there any point where you're just like, I don't think this is going to work at all. Or like, or has there ever been that moment where you're just like, I don't know if I can have a, a kid that looks exactly like Alex Rodriguez at age 10 play Alex Rodriguez because it is a serious story. You know, Tony Bunch was selling drugs to kids, you know, and underage kids that were getting their parents consent, some legally, some not. So like, it's such a serious story, but then you chose children for it. I'm curious the thought process behind that and take people through how that gets storyboard and conceptualized if you can
1: Sure. So um, there's a perfect example of limitations breeding creativity. We had a situation where we had a story that essentially is narrated by Tony Bosch, Porter Fisher, and and Jerome Hill, the, the, the agent, the Florida Department of Health agent. And when Tony and Porter are telling these stories, they're telling a very personal story. This is sort of some of these files being stolen from their office or they're at their house. You know, this isn't like cooking Cowboys or the U where there's a lot of archival footage. So as Tony and Porter are telling you these stories, we're thinking, oh boy, we have a problem. What are you going to see? What are you going to see while they're telling you these stories? We don't have, there's no B-roll for any of this. This is, you know, this is a very unique individualized story. So we said, well, we're going to have to shoot recreations. And so that was kind of the first Step into realizing, okay, how are we going to solve this problem? Uh, and you're right, totally it is a very serious uh, subject. There was, a, in fact, an Oscar-nominated doc, uh, uh, Icarus, which just premiered on Netflix and premiered at Sundance the year before, which is a very serious uh, telling of a steroid scandal. We said, well, okay, there are other ways to approach the storytelling other than just telling a straight thriller or, uh, you know, or, or just a straight drama. So. Um, You know, that was a case where we said, okay, we're going to do this. We've never done this before. We've never shot priest or anything ever before. We're going to do it with all kids who are going to have to lip sync dialogue. And it's still an indie film. So we're doing it on an indie film budget. We're going to do it at the actual, as many of the actual locations that we, that will allow us in. So we shot at Live. We shot at the Ritz-Carlton and Key Biscayne. We shot the Sports Grill. So we went to the real places and it was a tightrope and it was terrifying. Because we had 10 days to shoot, we had all of these kids, and you know, if it didn't, if we didn't nail it, it would be garbage. The whole concept would, would you know, you can't half step something like that. You have to go full on and you have to make it work and sell it each and every recreation that you do. So it was, um, it was ballsy. <laughs> it was, it was probably the scariest 10 days of production we've ever had. It was the most. Money we've ever spent per day on a shoot, and you know, praying that it doesn't rain, praying that you know everyone shows up and knows their lines, and you get it done. It was a, it was it was a terrifying proposition.
2: No, it was very well done. Uh, it's one of Thank my you. favorites. I love it.
3: Thank you. So I, you mentioned another project that uh, I am always. It's funny. A lot of these, you know, stand out to me. Some of my favorite pieces. Uh, I I represent the U today, although.
1: All right, very good.
3: <laughs> Mike and I are actually Rutgers graduates, so our exposure to the University of Miami is was, was the U whooping up on us. Yeah, oh yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I I did radio back then yeah, for our yeah. local for our college. It's Like I get to see the games up front and see basically <laughs> that, you know, the, the Hurricanes right, right. The talent through disparity, right, through right. Piscataway, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, but in seeing that, something I thought about when I watched the U and the U part two was the wondering I had was what made what made the University of Miami really essentially the beginnings of the first of the modern college football team in the sense like there's an aura there like we think about now obviously with Alabama and generally teams in the SEC but from the work you and Billy did what made you know what made the U really kind of bring college football into the 1980s and becoming a a modern sport
1: well it was really taking that that Muhammad Ali uh, attitude uh, you know attitudes that you generally saw in individual sports you know you might have said you know maybe uh, you talk about somebody like maybe a John McEnroe in tennis probably in the late 70s early 80s with that kind of you know edgier attitude and you know Reggie Jackson obviously in the New York Yankees probably during that period uh, that, that you could point to but Bringing that attitude to an entire team to basically make the, you know, obviously you have the Oakland Raiders, you know, who brought their own aura in pro football. So, you know, this was probably the closest analog to that, right? I mean, you basically brought that that level of, of swagger and hype to a game that was – you know i think at that point there was still that level of well these are amateurs there's a level of respect you know this is a different type of game you know these aren't professional sportsmanship is paramount you know kind of a kind of an old school ethic to uh, you know that that um uh, kind of demolished in the 1980s and you know whether that was you know, things like running up the score or any of the dancing or any of the traditions that they uh, you know, that, that, that they basically blew away. We see it happen in professional majoring baseball today, uh, you know, with the, with the divide between the old school and the new school in terms of bat flips and things like that. So I think every sport has had to deal with that along the way. Uh, but the Hurricanes certainly did it first in, the, in college football.
2: You know, Alfred, I, I want to ask you about the latest doc that came out, 537 Votes, which is available now on HBO Max. It's fantastically done. Um, I got you. a two-part question um, because... A lot of people wrongfully are conflating what happened in 2000 to what happened in 2020, uh, especially with a president not conceding until mid-December with, uh, you know, an election uh, being contested, but that was in one state and what happened, you know, with the the Republicans that were marching to, you know, get them to stop counting the votes Um when you guys were doing this documentary, was the intention for it to come out around the political cycle and then yes. uh, it was okay, so <laughs> I, I had a feeling, but you know you had, but but did you think that dropping that documentary and then what's transpired over the last four months would happen, and what do you think about the people? That are conflating the two they literally are not the same thing uh, and i would love for you to explain that to people
1: sure so we so 537 came about we were sitting in the office in august of 2019 me billy dave and our assistant i remember it was clear as they we were sitting around the office and we were talking we said you know we felt that every american had an obligation to do more in 2020 than they've ever done previously for a presidential election. And so we were thinking, well, what were we gonna do? How are we gonna support an effort to, to get out the vote? Are we gonna knock on doors? We back and said, well, we started talking about the 2000 election and our assistant at the time was born in 1990. So she was 10 at the time. We said, well, what do you remember of 2000? She said, ah, you know, I don't really remember too much. Or, you know, the hanging chads, you know, she knew a couple of the buzzer. I said, well, you know how close it was? And she said, no. I said, well, you know, 105 million people voted in 2000, and the entire election came down to 537 votes, and her jaw dropped. And I said, oh, well, this is interesting. So Billy and I looked at each other and said, well, how many Americans were born between, say, 1990 and 2002? Because if you are born in 02, you would have been 18 and eligible to vote for the first time. And the numbers found us, it was 54 million Americans, which meant to us that 54 million Americans had no firsthand memory of the 2000 election and how close it was. And, you know, having heard, you know, so many people say, over oh, Mike, does my vote really count? Why do I bother? Well, if you think your vote doesn't count, you don't know what happened in the year 2000. So we said, we're gonna take, we're gonna go out, we're gonna make this documentary about the 2000 election to remind everyone, basically like a stealth get out the vote documentary. Like, if you think your vote doesn't count, hear this. And what we realized quickly is we needed to tell the story of 2000 from a different perspective because the movie recount had been done. You know, everybody remembers Hanging Chads and how crazy it was in Florida. But what actually happened, And the more we drilled into it, the more we realized there was this connection between the Ellie and Gonzalez custody saga that happened at the beginning of the year and the election that happens at the end. And what we realized was that Dane County essentially decided the election that year. Uh, both because of the huge vote swing as a result of the Elian Gonzalez situation, and then as a result of the stopping of the count uh, of 10,750 potential undervotes that had gone uncounted in the initial machine count. So those two events we decided to fuse together. And we said, well, who are the key players who are common to both stories? And how do we tell? And so eventually what we settled on is we were going to tell the story of one year of the life of Miami Gate County. Starting from, you know, the beginning of January, essentially through the end of the year and how things, how the events in this one county in kind of like this butterfly effect kind of way, you know, this one county changed the course of history as a result. And so, um, you know, and that's kind of a common theme in screwball as well. The idea of things that happen in South Florida, things that get hatched here, whatever schemes or 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 frauds or crimes get hatched in Florida somehow, some way. in these kind of big national and international stories have a way of impacting them. And so similar to Super Bowl, the the election of 2000 was decided right here in miami Gate County. So that's why we decided to make a documentary. The goal was to have it out right before the election, which we luckily were able to do. Um, and I, I you know I had no idea. That things would have unfolded the way that they did. You know, I was glad on election night that we weren't down to one state. Could you imagine what would have happened this year if it came down to just one state? I mean, things got crazy over, uh, you know, essentially a landslide, seven million vote uh, spread. Right. If it were down six states too. Six really states. Nice. So it's just, it's remarkable that it's turned out this way. Um, unfortunately, it turned out to be more oppressive than I think we had even dreamed of, but um, it was a cautionary tale. And of course, it's one of those only Miami stories that, you know, we just have to
3: tell. You know, we've been talking about um, projects that, you know, got greenlit that got the screen that we've all obviously seen. Just shifting gears for a minute. Um, what is it, you know, what are some stories that, that didn't quite, passed the smell test for you and Billy that, that, that stayed on paper and didn't go any further than that? And what kept them staying on paper?
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite story, which I haven't told too often. I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever told this before uh, on like on a podcast or anything. So I'll, I'll tell the well, story. Hey, quick, no but time but like the present, Alfred. I'll I'll get, you, yeah, well, because, because it's actually a great question. I wish we got asked it more because at any one time, we have a list of like 15 or 20 projects um, that we're interested in making. And a lot of times what happens is it's just like a race to the finish line. Something gets access first, or this is a perfect project to bring to so 537 votes, we Adam, we heard Adam McKay was a fan, was a fan of Screwball. We started DMing on Twitter. He said, hey, got something, you know, that you might be interesting politically. We said to him, that's how Adam McKay got involved with 537 votes. Um, we had a project right after Cocaine Cowboys. We got approached um, by uh, a, a a good friend who said, you know, you guys just made the real Scarface, essentially the cooking cowboys. How would you like to make the real casino? And we said, what do you mean? He says, well, Frank Lefty Rosenthal, who is the inspiration for Sam Ace Rothstein, lives in Miami Beach and he's retired here and he's around his, you know, he's got a website. He does like some handicapping for a Costa Rican sports book, you know, but he's around. Would you be interested in meeting him? So we said, sure. So, a meeting is arranged, and we, uh, you know, where does Frank want to go? He wants to go to Joe's Stone Okay, we'll go to Joe's Stone we take, we take Frank to Joe's, we have a whole conversation with him. Uh, one of my, you know, he's an odds maker, obviously. So, one of his favorite stories is what uh, Billy asked, him, Well, how accurate was the movie Casino? And Frank took a second, he said, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember the exact ratio. He said, the movie was 73 percent of my life, told 65 percent accurately. And I was like, "Wow, this guy has really thought about uh, you know about this this, this ratio." So he says, "You know, we make him a proposal. Let's do this documentary of your life, Frank. You know, he's an older guy, probably late 70s this point. Let me think about. It. I'll get back. to you. A couple of weeks go by. Reach out. Say, you know, Frank, you want to have lunch? Yeah, let's go. We'll go. Let's go to Prime 112." all right, we'll go, to go to lunch with Frank, have another lunch. I'll
2: I tell you what, Frank, man, he's, he's not a cheap." <laughs> you well, know, Frank knew where to go. So, <laughs> so he's like, you know, this
1: is a very interesting idea. He's like, let me give it some more thought. I'll get back to you. Okay, a couple weeks go by. We realize, okay, we're going to have to call and go to another lunch. So we suggest going to this restaurant, Joe Allen at the time, which is on the other side of Miami Beach. It was like a good like diner spot. And we're sitting there with Joe Allen and Frank, uh, a billionaire, sitting there waiting for him to come for lunch. And you see him park his Mercedes 500 SL, Right outside in a towway zone. And I see him amble on in. I'm thinking to myself, oh no. He's gonna have to go and move his car. Frank comes it's like, Frank, listen, I uh, that you know, say so you're occurring there, you know, you're in tow way zone, he looks and he says, You know, it's gonna take me twenty minutes to I says, Will you move my car for me, to put it in another spot? I said, sure, Frank, you know, I'll take his keys. And as I'm walking out of the restaurant, all I could think about was the opening of the movie casino. Oh. <laughs> And I'm like, I have to go start Frank Lefty Rosenthal's car right now. I hope this is going to be right. Everything worked out. We moved his car. We had lunch. He said, let me think about it. We walked away. Four weeks later, he passed away. Oh, wow. And we never got to make the Frank Lefty Rosenthal real casino documentary. But I did get to publish an obituary for Lefty. uh, The headline that uh, was Frank Lefty Rosenthal once asked me to start his car him. And so that was my, uh, that was my headline for, uh, for Lefty Zobit, And uh, we never got to make that talk, but probably if you had to ask what it was, you know, the one that got away, that's the one that got away.
2: That, that is a really amazing tale. You know, um, Alfred, before we let you go, is, is there anything that you guys are working on that's, that's kind of right now top secret or anything that's come to public light that you can share with us that, that you and Billy are working on?
1: There are things we're working on that are top secret. Okay, there we go. You heard it straight (laughs) from the source. The the thing is, is that when you're making a documentary, you don't really want to talk about it until you're at the very end and you have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed and you're ready to put it out into the world. Otherwise, it's just, uh, we've hyped things in the past. uh, We like to talk about it as soon as we're ready to go.
2: Well, that's great. Great to hear. Um, and the storytelling that you guys do, I speak for myself and I think Nick as well, It's just fantastic. Um, cocaine, Cowboys, uh, you. the you, broke, screwball. I'm telling you, go, Nick. I've been telling you for a while now to go watch Screwball. You're gonna call me out how many already? times out. <laughs> I tell you? How many times did
3: I tell you? Come on, man. You have not get
2: seen it
1: Get it on yet. Netflix, Nick. It's probably I know, going to be a while. I, I
3: think I Cocaine Cowboys but, two,
2: weeks ago, I didn't I re- I, two weeks ago. But I, I'm I, here. I really I'm here. I really, I'm here. I really I'm here want people watching 537 votes on HBO Max. You can add another subscription service, folks. Go watch the documentary so you kind of get some knowledge about what happened in 2000. Alfred, we really appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you so much for giving us some time.
1: Thanks, guys. Pleasure.
2: All right. That was legendary producer Alfred Spellman. Nick, that was I mean, that was fantastic, man. Some of the stories he told, especially about Frank Lefty Rosenthal um, and some documentaries that almost could have come to light. But listen, folks, if you get a chance to check out Raconteur Productions and the films that they've made from Cocaine Cowboys, I've mentioned it a bunch of times, Screwball on Netflix. 537 votes on HBO Max. Check out from the ESPN 30 for 30 catalog. They did broke. They did the U. Um, There's just so many great stories that have come out of that production company. Um, And Alfred just really let you in tonight on on the secret sauce, man, like what a producer does, how they storyboarded some of these ideas. I I just thought it was fantastic, man. I'm, I'm really appreciative of the time you gave us.
3: Yeah, alfred and billy are both the, both my age you know we're all kids of the yeah. year 1978 so you know they talk you know alfred brings up like when we hear the word documentary you know people of, you know of our age group and mike you, i'll fall you, you fall into this too there's a certain thing that comes in our head a certain perception of documentaries and yeah. you know for anyone who's watched projects from Rack and, and and if you've caught the show today they are very intentional about thinking of that definition of what we've previously have thought of documentaries and stepping back and exploding the equation and have yeah. produced films that are as watchable as just, you know, script to film movies.
2: Oh, no, it's a great point because, you know, and even, I, I've been mentioning Screwball a bunch. I mean, they should they should pay me for some of this promotion, but Screwball <laughs> is told so well. And I'm, I'm glad he told you the story of like, you know, we had to... These kids have to read scripts and we got to make sure everything is perfect because a lot of this stuff, like he he mentioned, there's no archival footage. I I can't show you what happened between a private conversation of two people. So I've got to get creative. I got to think of a way to tell this story. And I just think that's fantastic. Um, Check out all their documentaries. You can head to the raconteur.com to kind of check out everything that they've worked on. They have links from there. But like I mentioned, all the documentaries are available across the streaming services. Uh, Speaking of uh, streaming or or listening, uh, you can check out our podcast across all the audio platforms. You can watch it on YouTube. Hit subscribe as Nick is going to smash the button down at the bottom, you know, uh, and follow us. uh, Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time.
3: Do you.